ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. And welcome to another Books of the Year podcast, and it's another Books of the Year chat with Michael Connolly. Um, where you got this pod, you can get uh, our conversation about The Law of Innocence, which is his new novel and paperback. Uh, but this is the Q&A, and Michael uh, is in Vegas, and Matt, he's the one with the dodgy line. He's, like, he's like about a mile away from me, but, you know, yes. but Michael's in Vegas, and his line is perfect. So question number one to Michael Connolly, what was the last book, Michael, that you really, really enjoyed? I just finished a book that I keep telling other people to read because uh, it really meant something to me. It's nonfiction. It's called Rock Me on the Water by Ronald Brownstein. And it's about 1974 in Los Angeles and how that year was pivotal to this city because the city was kind of on top of culture in terms of films, television, um, music, and politics. And it it interweaves all these things in a pretty amazing way. Uh, Brownstein used to work at the LA Times when I was there almost 30 years ago. Um, so he knows the city. And it's just really interesting. In 19, It's about 1974, and that was the year that was very instrumental in my life. I turned 18, and that was when I decided I wanted to be a writer. But I was influenced by music, movies, and everything. 1974 is when um, the movie Chinatown came out, which remains oh. my favorite uh, film of all time. Um, it's when Bob Dylan and the band went on this amazing um, uh, tour um, that um, was really the kind of the birth of arena rock. And, um, you know, and then uh, the, the, on TV, we went from kind of like, empty shows like Petticoat Junction and Green Acres that really didn't mean anything to shows like uh, MASH and uh, All in the Family. And these shows all were jockeying for number one in the ratings in 1974. And then on politics in California, uh, Jerry Brown, I don't know if he means much in the UK, but he kind of was the first of that flower child generation to, to hit a major office. He was elected in his early 30s to governor of California. And that seemed to really tilt the axis on politics in the country. So all this stuff happened in 1974. And it's just interesting how it all intermingled. Um, I didn't mention the music, but the music, this was before punk rock, before Bruce Springsteen really broke big in the world. 
Um, it was like the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt, and they all lived mm. in the same place, Laurel Canyon in, in Los Angeles, where I happen to live now. And uh, it's just, I just love this book, so I keep telling people to read it. So, so given, Michael, that you, uh, from an early age, wanted to be a journalist, I'm going to guess that books played an important part in your childhood. Is, is the one that would, that would stand out for you? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's probably a cliche, but it's To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I, I lived in South Florida. Um, we didn't have air conditioning in our house. It was brutally hot in the summer. So I went to libraries a lot because they were air conditioned. And I was reading in the summer of 1968. I read uh, The Kill a Mockingbird kind of piecemeal. I'd read a little bit, put it back on the shelf. Come Next time I come back, pick it up. And it just, it really hit me because it was about, you know, courage and sacrifice. Someone willing to uh, put himself and his family and everything at risk to do the right thing, to do what he believed in. And so it was, that was a pretty uh, instrumental uh, story for me to read when I was 12 years old. And, you know, and, and then echoes many decades into the future when I'm writing The Lincoln Lawyer, because that's also a story about a lawyer who puts himself at risk and, uh, and those around him, those he loves to do the right thing. Um, if we were with you in, uh, in your house, I know you're in a hotel room at the moment, but if we were in your house, describe your book collection for us, Michael. What would, what would we see? Is it carefully arranged? Do you have you know, a library in a separate wing? I don't know. What, how is it organized? I have a big wall in my living room that's all shells, and I do, I stand far away from it and look at it like a painting and I rearrange things and, uh, um, it, the wall means a lot. It's got, you know, it's, I don't know, 85% books, but there's also photos that mean stuff to me and knickknacks and stuff like that. But I have one section that's all, uh, nonfiction. It's all books about jazz, which really came out of my research. I didn't grow up, um, being a jazz guy. My father was the jazz guy. But when I gave that music to Bosch as his kind of elite motif of his, of his life, um, I did a lot of serious researching and 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 read many books about it to, to kind of figure out who we would listen to. So that's a big section of it. I have, you know, sections of like the Raymond Chandler section. I have all his books. Not Luckily, he only wrote seven because they're expensive, but I have them in first first editions. Um, I, I won the best first novel back in 93, uh, the Edgar Award for best first novel. So I've now collected all of those going back to the, uh, they started that award in the 50s. And I've got them all except for one. And I can't think of which one it is offhand, but it's not the first one. It's, but it's something from the 50s that I have book scouts looking for. They've been looking for it for years. I've never been able to get one. Um, but then, you know, I, you know, I have a lot of contemporary fiction, uh, crime fiction, a lot of stuff from um, set in L.A. And so I would say it's kind of an L.A. bookshelf. So if there, if there is a sort of thriller section there, then, Michael, what, what would be the author? Who would be your favorite thriller writer that we'd see on your bookshelf? Yeah, there is a section on that, and it's, it's probably almost all Thomas Harris. I got all his mm. stuff in first edition. Um, got one that's signed by him, supposedly. I bought it from uh, secondhand. Um, but I hear he doesn't really sign books. But, um, yeah, very influential on me. This, You know, he came about, after I was on the path, I knew I wanted to be a writer. 
Um, so there's uh, kind of like the dead writers that inspired me, and then I'm on the path and I'm trying to get there. And reading his books, I think, were uh, the best thrillers um, that I could have read because they just inspired me to keep going, to keep trying, uh, trying to, uh, you know, be better at what I'm trying to do. Um, when and where, Michael, are you most comfortable writing? So we're talking location, time of day. Would there be any music playing? Las Vegas under a mirror ceiling. No. Um, <laughs> You know, being a former journalist, I can actually write anywhere, anytime, um, because you have to. You have to learn to have that skill and be able to block out intrusion. Um, so I, I do have that skill, but, you know, as you say, if it was if I had my druthers, where would it be? And I have a fa- fabulous office at my home. Uh, I live in the hills, and I, I can see out over the city. I can see mountains in the distance, and it's um, – you don't think of LA as a bucolic place, but my view is bucolic. And so it lends itself to, uh, to writing. And, and I love to be in that room before the sun comes up. So it goes from dark to light. And those are my most productive hours, probably like from five to AM to 10 AM. Um, that's where I get a lot of stuff done. Um, is there a book that you really had to persevere with, um, Michael, but that you were glad that you did in the end? Are you talking about when I wrote? I guess. Well, no. well, no. I was thinking about one you read rather than one of the ones that you, that you wrote. But but feel free to answer for both. Oh, I don't know. The uh, I have a difficulty with long books in terms of reading them, and so uh, a lot of Stephen King's books are really long. But I, I power through them because uh, it's worth it. Um, there is a Norman Mailer book on it called The Executioner's Song, a nonfiction mm. uh, um, about uh, an execution. And I remember reading that when I was a senior in college, and uh, it had nothing to do with a class or anything, so it was interrupting my classes. But it was it was really an important book for me. Um, it took a long time for me to read it, but you know I was going into journalism then, and this was like kind of a new kind of journalism, very character driven, and. Uh, so it was a big influence. So that was one that was was tough uh, to get through, but definitely worth the uh, the effort. Just before the final question, it occurs to me my nineteen seventy four was very different to your nineteen seventy four. We had, you know, we had the Bay City Rollers and David Essex and <laughs> Shawadi Wadi and that, and that. But your nineteen seventy four sounds so much more yeah. exciting than, yeah. than my nineteen seventy four. Well. I mean, it's an interesting time because that was the moment because, like, in movies, uh, the very next year was the movie Jaws, which just changed Hollywood. Everyone was going after the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, box office return. And movies like Chinatown, they they became very difficult to make. And, um, you know, I've um, including the podcast I'm working on is about a, a, a. murder that happened in uh, 1981 but it has but it happened in laurel canyon so i talk about 1974 in it and you know so i call it the peaceful easy feeling moment in la you know after the eagle song that that disappeared very quickly when uh, the music shift the center of music shifted back to new york and london with um, you know uh, sex pistols and and all that kind of stuff that came afterwards it just you know it, it just changed things completely and on the music front. And, you know, so it's, 
is again, I'm going back to your first question. This book is really interesting in, in, in taking this slice of time and seeing how we were different before it and completely different after yeah. it. Uh, fascinating. We I think we should we need to get a hold of that for another for another podcast. Final question to you, Michael: Is there a book that you would like to step inside of? I never quite get this question particularly. Uh, <laughs> it might only be for a day, and you can get out at any time. But as someone, you know, is there someone who has created such a an extraordinary world that you thought oh, I wouldn't mind being a part of that? Well, it's funny. The um, I, I write fiction, obviously, but. Um, I, I'm more often entertained by nonfiction and, you know, learning stuff. And I mentioned my jazz collection. Probably my favorite book in the whole jazz collection is a, um, a book called Straight Time by Art Pepper, who is a saxophonist in California, uh, based, based in L.A. And uh, he, it, a lot of people say it's the best book ever written about jazz. And, he, you know, this is more a personal story about how drugs sidetracked him and he spent a lot of time in prison but the sections about the jazz scene the west coast jazz scene as they call it the los angeles jazz scene in the 1950s and who was playing and who would just walk in and work and and play with other people classic musicians is is was an amazing time and i just kind of wish um you know i could have been a fly on the wall for some of these uh scenes that are described in this book and some of these these sessions that brought um, the best of the best together, yeah. maybe for only one night. Uh, Michael, it's fasc- fascinating just to hear you uh, talk about books, whether they're your books or other people's books. And uh, we appreciate your time with us again and all the best for your interview that you have to go and do now in, uh, in Vegas. Look out for those zombies. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, We have many episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.